Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. One of the issues that is really interesting to me these days is the potential in the 2016 election to dramatically improve America's energy production and thus overall well-being, in addition to well-being around the world, through policies that liberate forms of energy production that are very much constrained right now. Uh, So I, I learned recently of a report by a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute named Oren Cass called Step on the Gas, How to Extend America's Energy Advantage. So I thought I would have him on the show and tell us about some of the unexploited opportunities that we have that hopefully policy-wise we can unleash in the next uh, election, in this coming uh, election. So we'll be back with Oren Cass on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Oren Cass, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Oren, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be with you. All right. So you have this new report, Step on the Gas, exclamation point, how to extend America's energy advantage. What, what brought this uh, up? Why did, why did you write this report? Well, the, the paper is really about thinking about energy policy, looking ahead over the next 10 or 20 years for the U.S., and I think, you know, what really drew me to the topic was looking at the 2016 campaign getting underway and thinking of the various ways it differs from the 2012 campaign. Because, of course, back in 2012, uh, we were effectively, the, the shale boom was ongoing, but no one really knew it yet. And there was a, an enormous amount of discussion of, you know, should we be expanding oil and gas production or not? Is that a viable uh, economic path to the country. And then if you think four years before that to 2008, it was the days of drill baby drill um, with the right saying, you know, we can relieve pressure on gas prices and so forth with additional exploration. And the left saying that's ridiculous. We don't have any oil and it, and it will take too long to come online anyway. And so I think as you compare those to where we are now in 2015, there's a sense that Direction and oil glut now that the shale boom has happened. You know, if anything, it's past its peak. We're already seeing layoffs in the industry. Prices have collapsed, and I think that's just a very short-sighted time frame to focus on. I think actually, you know, now at this moment of of high production and low prices is exactly the right time to be thinking about what comes next. And and it's just as foolish now to ignore the next step of, of planning and policy as it was four or eight years to go to say, well, it takes too long, so we shouldn't bother talking about it. The argument, people seem to like these kinds of arguments like you can't solve problems by drilling, or but it, it just seems like a kind of bizarre category of argument because you could say that of any amount of drilling. Like, you know, you shouldn't, 
you, you shouldn't drill the second oil well or the third oil well, or you shouldn't you shouldn't start the next farm. I mean, obviously, every marginal unit matters, and you don't and with policy you don't always know how many marginal units are are possible. And here you see that there's this unbelievable potential that the vast majority of people didn't think exist. But why is that? Why do you think this view of oh you can't solve your problem through more drilling? Why is that so prevalent? Well, I think you know if you think back to 2008, which was when when this fight was really most prominent, the assumption was that the U.S. was essentially a a small and declining uh, producer of oil for the long run, and you know, part of it was just talking points where the president would say, we consume 25% of the world's oil and we only have 3% of the reserves, willfully confusing people on the difference between recoverable resources and proved reserves. Um, but I also think there was a sense at the time that, that it was somewhat true, that even if you did significant additional development offshore in places like Anwar, that the marginal production that you could get out of it would really only be a drop in the bucket in in the scheme of the global oil market. And what's been so striking about the shale boom is that it has not only disproved the idea that we, we were running out of resources, it has also disproved the idea that small marginal gains aren't going to have a big impact. Um, if, if you look at how much additional oil the U.S. has actually brought to market through the shale boom, it's on the order of three to four million barrels a day. The you know that's probably less than five percent of the global supply, and similar in scale to what we already know we could be producing if we were drilling more aggressively offshore and and in Alaska. And so we already know that we have the capability to repeat this shale boom again um, with other resources. And now that the shale boom has occurred, we also have the proof that it works and that the economic benefits and, and the geopolitical benefits as well will be enormous. Yeah, so the boom is something we, we have, to, you, you, I, I'll, I'll of course include a link to the paper because you have a lot of good data about the boom. Um, we've discussed that a lot on this show, although you definitely add a lot in the paper. But what I want to focus on is you, you have um, a list of reforms, uh, which I find really interesting. So I want to, I want to go through those. And I'll just I'll read them uh, just from the paper and then have you uh, elaborate on them. Um, so reform one, and by the way, I just also want to add to highlight for people, it's very important, I think, that we know we have the capability of doing this with existing resources or potential resources that are being held back right now. So if we look at the unbelievable results of this boom, how much it's benefited the American economy, it's like we have in reserve, so to speak, another one of those. And we're not doing anything about it, or rather we're prohibiting it or, or restricting it. And I think that'll come up in your later reforms. But so number one you have is approved Keystone XL, establish an expedited pipeline permitting process that deems all such infrastructure to be in the national interest, and identify a single agency to coordinate reviews and approvals on a fixed timeline. So there's a, there's a bunch of elements there. How do those fit together? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think Keystone has been a flashpoint um, for discussion, but it's really only um, one pipeline. It's a very big pipeline, but it's it's more a microcosm of a general challenge in this country of building infrastructure that we need to move around our energy resources. Um, 
you know, we are now producing, particularly in places like North Dakota, enormous amounts of oil where we had never produced it previously. And so as we become an oil producing nation on a larger scale, as we become potentially an oil exporting nation, we need to be able to move both the oil and the gas um, from, from point to point as efficiently as possible. And that means building a lot of pipelines, and that means all of the environmental reviews and holdups and challenges that, that traditionally come along with that. And so doing that effectively and managing between local and state and federal rules and, and so forth requires actually being on a, uh, on a positive stance of wanting to get that done and then actually really trying to create a streamlined process that says, look, it is the national policy to get this stuff built. Let's figure out how to make it as easy as possible to do so. Yeah, I want to highlight just the the phrase "all such deems all such infrastructure to be in the national interest" because right now we've just got this situation where, at you know, with any given project that that crosses these kinds of lines, they can just say, "Oh, we don't think it's in the national interest," or they can hold it up forever, uh, which is what they're doing now. And just the the precedent for that is so so bad. In the you know, pipeline, I've talked to some of these companies in a typical pipeline from end to end, you know, from conception to completion was four years. And now it takes, you know, approaching 10 years to not get a permit. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting that that same standard shows up in other places. So just as with building a pipeline, especially across national lines, you know, requires a determination from the State Department that it's within national interest. Same thing if we want to build an export terminal for, for natural gas. One of the first steps is actually making a determination that it's in the natural national interest. And that kind of reflects a, I think, just very outdated view of the country's energy situation. You know, these kinds of policies were put into effect in the 1970s on an assumption that we were facing crippling scarcity of resources. And they're just not well suited to manage the situation we have today where we're actually trying to figure out how to take advantage of, of an abundance of resources. Also, another thing I like about that phrase is just that, that it's, it's an endorsement of industrial progress, or it's saying it's good for us to be building things. And, and I think in very many ways, in some ways, we, you know, we've become a nation of blockers rather than a nation of builders. And I think the default should be, certainly for our State Department, we want to be building more things that facilitate uh, production and trade. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So number two is repeal the Jones Act entirely or at a minimum as it pertains to the transport of energy products. So most people don't know what the Jones Act is. So tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So the Jones Act is, is a, a relic of early 20th century policy that uh, essentially tried to protect uh, U.S. shipbuilders and, and operators by saying that any, any product moved from point A to point B within the United States by ship has to be on an American ship with American crew and so forth. Um, and it was, it was defended at the time as a way to ensure that we would have a robust merchant marine if, if we needed it for military purposes. But in reality, it's just, it's just essentially pure protectionism to, to try to prop up uh, a, a U.S. industry. You know, it's not as if foreign ships can't come into all of our ports. They do. Um, they just don't move things from one U.S. port to another U.S. port. And the result of that is really to have 
significantly driven up the cost of moving all sorts of things, but now moving uh, oil as well from, from point to point. And especially as we refine so much gasoline in the Gulf Coast and so much of our infrastructure uh, is designed toward funneling resources toward the Gulf Coast, being able to move that, especially up to the East Coast, is hugely important. And so I would say in a sense, you know, reforms one and two really go together. It's all about how do we make this country as efficient as possible for moving resources around. And one way to do that is to get more pipelines in place. Another way to do that is to make sure that uh, low-cost shipping is available. And in the absence of those, what we're seeing instead is an enormous spike in the use of rail, uh, both to, to move oil out of places like North Dakota and then to get it to places like the East Coast. And that's more expensive. It's actually less safe um, and, and not something we want to see over the long term. Yeah, I like the point about how they're, how they're related, because I was going to ask you about what's the positive principle behind this, and it seems something like the, the free flow of energy, or it's how, how vital it is to be able to move energy as quickly and efficiently as possible versus having all of the, the bottlenecks, self-imposed bottlenecks we have now. Right, exactly. And, and this, these first few reforms that we're talking about, I've kind of grouped under what I would call amplifying the boom, which mm -hmm. is, you know, we're not talking yet about new ways to produce oil and gas. This is really about how do we get the most out of the boom that's already underway, because right now we're trying to manage it with policies that, that are just geared to a very different set of circumstances than what we actually have. And that leads to Reform 3, which is another one about trade, which is lift restrictions on the export of oil and natural gas. Accord such products the same treatment as other American commodity exports. Yeah, the, you know, this is certainly a, a hot-button issue uh, in Washington at this point. I'm, I'm not the, the first one to mention this by any means, um, but I do think it's, it's something that fits very well in, in this package, which is, again, in the 1970s, we, we put in place policies to prohibit the export of oil, um, and, and we have policies on the books that also make it very difficult to export natural gas. And one can debate whether that ever made any sense under any resource uh, picture, but it certainly makes no sense today. Um, and, and you can see that in, in differences in what oil is selling for in the U.S. versus internationally, because we have so much oil stranded here, and even more so in the difference for what gas sells for domestically and internationally. And so really, you know, part of getting the most out of this boom and, and extending U.S. economic and, uh, and geopolitical influence is to, to make sure that we can play an active role as an exporter where it makes sense to do so. Um, and I don't mean make sense to do so in, in the eyes of a bureaucrat, but I mean where where the economics of the market want to pull uh, pull those products out into the export market. And you know this is something that that numerous studies have been done on from across the political spectrum. Even even GAO has done a study, and everyone has found that you know this is good for the economy. It's actually good for consumers. It will even lower gas prices. And so, other than kind of pure political point scoring. And, and a desire by environmentalists to just shut down production wherever they can. There, there really isn't much of an argument against moving forward with exports. Then number four, which also relates to exports, is streamline permitting for natural gas and crude oil export terminals. Designate such terminals in the public interest without a need for case-by-case -case review. Enact a single approval process with clear timelines. 
Yeah, so this is essentially the parallel to, to what we talked about a few minutes ago with respect to pipelines. You know, we, we need the pipelines to get the resources from point to point, and then we also need uh, the terminals at the ends of the pipelines that, that get the resources onto boats. Um, and, and that has been a huge struggle with natural gas, which we have started to, to move forward with the export of in some circumstances, but is subject to a lot of very lengthy review, um, in, including, again, this determination of whether it's in the nat national interest, as if it would not be in the national interest to have the capacity to export natural gas. Um, and even if we move forward with oil exports, we will then still need the actual infrastructure at ports to, to do that effectively. And that's something that should be a national priority and should be something that we're, we're trying to remove obstacles from, not putting obstacles in the way of. So the final reform under Amplify the Boom Reform 5 is exempt new and expanded natural gas plants, new and expanded refineries and new drilling sites and export terminals from the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act's new source requirement. Instead, apply current standards to such projects. So you know, people will see that and be, there's this whole narrative, of, oh, you're exempting them, it's, you're allowing them to pollute the air and the water. So what's going on here? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I should say rather than exempting them, ideally we would just you know, get rid of the new standards altogether. Um, but, but this is at least a start. And the underlying problem here is that for both the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, the way that they function is to have one standard for existing facilities and then a different higher standard for new facilities. So if you want to go out and build a new facility, even if it looks exactly like an existing one down the street, you can't build it using the same technology that that existing one is using. You have to use more state-of-the-art, advanced, and in most cases expensive uh, technology to, to reduce pollution. And that's something that was done in the 1970s, again, at a time when you know, pollution was, was a major problem, both air and water pollution, and the country was rightfully focused on ratcheting up these kinds of standards very quickly. But today, frankly, you know, clean air and clean water are not uh, are not high on the list of problems that this country has. And as a result, telling new projects you still have to face a higher standard than we're holding existing projects to is, is a ratcheting that, that just turns things too tight and slows down economic and industrial progress for marginal environmental improvement that's just not worth as much. And so the, the suggestion here is to just say, look, for all of these new energy facilities that we need, in order to take advantage of these new resources we have, let's again put a priority on getting them built and not putting new and higher standards in their way. And that's especially important because with things like natural gas, you know, natural gas is, is cleaner um, than coal, as one example. And so building new natural gas plants that burn cheap natural gas to generate electricity is actually great for the environment in most instances and and allowing those plants to be built the same way existing plants have been built uh, it's a good way to to get them built and to get that gas used the same goes for refineries and and the same even goes for drilling sites where especially some of the regulations proposed by the Obama administration would dramatically increase the cost of continuing to drill for things like natural gas uh, in in places like Pennsylvania and we'd be much better off saying, look, all of the standards that all of our existing facilities are using, keep doing that as much as you want. 
All right, so the next big section is extend the boom. But before we get to that, because there's a whole other interesting list of reforms there, I want to talk about the, the process by which such reforms can possibly be enacted, because I, at, at, essentially I agree with all of these things and, and many other forms of what I like to call energy liberation, which is allowing us to produce energy and trade energy to our full potential. Uh, but if you look at the, you know, the history, well, certainly of the last eight years, but I think even even farther back under different administrations, uh, yeah, they're not doing anything nearly this good. And part of the reason I want to ask you about implementation is you worked uh, with Governor Romney, right? Uh, as yes. his policy advisor. So can you tell us, uh, um, tell us a little about your background and then I have a, a question about um, that that relates to. Yeah, sure. So I, I was Governor Romney's domestic policy director uh, in, in 2011 and 2012 for his presidential campaign. And, and certainly energy policy is something that uh, we, we spent a lot of time on. And I think a little bit to, to what you were alluding to, really trying to understand how do you do some of these things? Because there are places that, that you would have to change the law. But as we've seen with the Obama administration, there's also an awful lot that, that a president can potentially do. And so figuring out how to make the government work as well as possible, even within the laws that, that are already written, uh, is, is something that I think is, is an important part of an effective energy policy. So, well, so if, if Romney had been elected, do you think these kinds of things would have been possible to put in, in place? Well, you know, I certainly think the, the streamlining of... Uh, of, of reviews and, and requirements for things like pipelines and export facilities is something that the uh, that the executive branch and, and a president can can and should do. Um, you know, with respect to the environmental regulations, certainly Congress would need to be in, in, involved in removing new source standards altogether. But a president has and and his administration has a good deal of flexibility in where the those standards are set. And so just as we're seeing the Obama administration really try to ratchet the standards up as aggressively as it can, you know, a better administration and, and certainly a Romney administration would have taken a much more sensible approach to what those standards looked like. All right, Orrin, so we got cut off due to technical difficulties. Maybe I have a solar-powered internet connection here in, in uh, Laguna Beach and the cloud just came over. But anyway, you were talking about oil exports. Uh, so uh, can you continue with that? Yeah, sure. I think oil exports is the one piece of the, the policy package we've been talking about that, that really does require congressional action. Uh, and, and it's great to see it getting a lot of ten attention in Washington right now. Uh, but it's it's something that at the end of the day we're going to have to see a vote on, and and we're going to have to make sure the case is made very quickly, very clearly that uh, you know exports are good for the country, it's good for the economy, it's good for consumers, and, and and hopefully get that done. Who are the main people resisting that? Well, you know, I I think there are kind of two strains from the left that that are, are resisting exports. One is folks who see it just as, as a good political talking point. Um, you know, it, it is easy to make the argument American oil for Americans, right? 
that, that doesn't actually make sense if you think about it a little harder. We don't say that about any other product. With anything else, we say we want to increase exports. But the American psyche for so long has been so focused on keeping our oil and, and being worried about being dependent on oil imports that it, it naturally sounds scary to say, hey, let's let uh, oil companies sell our oil overseas. And so, you know, there are absolutely political points to be scored attacking, uh, attacking the proposal that we should open up exports, even though there are no actual points behind it. So I think there's a, some opportunistic point scoring. And then the second piece is that for, for environmentalists and folks who just want to see, you know, the, the production of oil and gas slowed down, it's, uh, it's a helpful bottleneck to have no exports allowed. And the faster we see exports open up, the faster we'll see more pressure to keep on opening up more oil and gas production. So it's, it's a little bit of a bank shot, but to the extent that they can't directly prevent the oil and gas from being developed, they can try to prevent it from being sold. Um, and, and that at least has its own internal logic to it, but, but is certainly not good for the country. Great. All right. So the next section of the paper is extend the boom. And there are a bunch of specific proposals, but just um, encapsulate for us what, what this is all about. Yeah, so the point of extending the boom is to think about what comes after shale. You know, the, the experts are divided a little bit right now on whether the shale boom still has a long way to run in continued growth in places like North Dakota, in Texas, in, in other shale uh, plays that have received less attention so far. But really, regardless of whether it uh, is, is near its peak already or, or has significant growth still to come, the... Uh, the lesson from the boom that has occurred is that essentially the more the better, that everything that has happened with the shale boom could happen again if we could repeat it with additional resources. And for better or for worse, we have all of these resources sitting under federal land and under federal waters that so far has been held off limits. Um, obviously for worse because it has... Uh, dampened opportunities we could have been taking advantage of, but for better because it's now incredibly low-hanging fruit. And so what I tried to do was essentially line up the, the boom that we've seen play out on, on private lands and state lands uh, with shale oil and, and line that up next to what we know about the size of some of these federal resources. So for instance, Anwar, which is on the north slope of, of Alaska up in the Arctic, is uh, very similar in scale to the Bakken, which is the enormous shale play in North Dakota. Um, some of the other resources offshore in the Arctic, for instance, are actually much larger than anything we've seen from the shale boom. Um, even relatively smaller resources, like what is offshore in the Atlantic, which is often kind of dismissed as barely worth developing, um, actually looks very similar in scale to some of these enormous shale plays. And the one huge difference to keep in mind is that the shale plays didn't look big until we developed them. And what we've learned time and time again, even in places like the Gulf of Mexico, is that once you let the private sector go in and explore and develop and refine their techniques and, and refine their uh, surveys, there typically ends up being significantly more resources available than we thought there would be. 
And so if you look at, at what we thought we would find in the shale boom, even five years ago, it's a fraction of what we've ultimately found. Uh, and, and if that kind of upside exists with some of these other federal resources, then, then the total size could, could be truly enormous. Yeah, that's part of what bugs me about all these claims about, oh, you know, you shouldn't drill there. It's not worth it. I mean, not only is it these margin, do these marginal things make a big difference, but you have no idea what the potential is, what's down there, but also our capacity to extract things. And as we're getting, right now, we get a tiny percentage of the theoretically recoverable resource from things like shale. And, you know, most oil fields in the U.S., you've got much less than 50% historical recovery. So I don't know that it'll become economic to recover that, but I don't, but nobody knows that it won't uh, either. And so yeah, I, I really, uh, again, we'll have this report on the site. I think it's, it's, it's just really cool to see untapped opportunity that even, even at the lower end of expectations is really good, let alone the kind of upper end that we have no idea uh, about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the other great thing about all that potential upside is that it's not government placing the bets. It's the private sector. You know, what, what we're asking the government to do is to get out of the way, to, to establish a clear process that provides access to these resources, um, that regulates the process, but that doesn't leave things off limits. And then we're saying, look, private sector, place your bets. You know, if we, if we try to open one of these resources, let's say the Atlantic, and no one in the private sector thinks it's worth investing in, that's fine. Um, but, but that's a decision that can be made by experts who are putting their money where their mouths are. What we don't want is essentially having a government bureaucrat either, you know, without skin in the game or with a political stake in maybe a different outcome saying, oh, well, never mind, we don't think that's big enough, when really we, we have the extraordinary oil and gas sector of this country lining up and ready to move forward with trying to develop it. What is the, it, there's this whole background issue of the astounding percentage of the land in the United States that is, you know, that was taken over by the federal government, uh, including under the Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt administration, um, which, is a whole subject that my basic position on is that should not have happened. Uh, but the, in any case, I'm wondering what is the policy for more politically correct forms of energy, like windmills? Because, you know, people say, oh, don't put an oil rig in the ocean, but then they want a permanent set of giant windmills in the ocean. Uh, so what, what, what is the policy right now for federal lands for the more favored forms of energy? Well, you know, it's essentially developed case by case in both with with respect to both the oil and gas and with respect to using the land for uh, things like solar panels and, and, and wind turbines. And so what you have is with respect to oil and gas development, you have an administration that's just saying we're not going to put that up for sale. Uh, and then even to the extent that the law requires things to be made available, you know, we're going to slow it as much as possible. Um, and then even once we do sell it, we're going to slow the permitting as much as possible, et cetera. And then similarly, if, if, if you have things, uh, renewable energy technologies you want to put on those lands, in theory it could be as, as fast or as slow as, as the government chooses to make it. But obviously you have a political environment where uh, there, there's a lot more bending over backwards to move forward with those types of projects 
um, even though in many cases they also have significant environmental impacts. Yeah, I'm interested in that. I just I'm visualizing in my mind because just you know at, at Manhattan Institute, I mean, you know, you have a couple of people, including Robert Bryce, who are known for focusing a lot on energy density and, and power density issues, and then the implications of those for just how much space things take up. And I'm I'm just thinking the, of these these arguments that oh we can't put you know we we can't put an oil rig on this land, and yet you've got something that is you know this relatively small temporary thing versus these things that by the nature of if you're calling them renewable, which I think is a dubious term, you are putting them there indefinitely. I mean, yeah, that's, that's certainly true. And I think, you know, with, with offshore wind as an example, that's, that's just, well, that, that continues to sit out there and, and, and that, that environmentalists continue to want to build, you know, the, uh, the, the, the trade-off between offshore wind and, uh, and offshore oil rigs is not, not necessarily in favor of the wind. Um, but, you know, with all of these things, the, there's the, the letter of the law, but an enormous amount of uh, discretion ultimately lands in the hands of an administration and of agencies. And so the question is, are we going to have a national policy that embraces the incredible potential of producing oil and gas uh, from these resources that we have, or are we going to have one that that essentially looks at those resources as as a necessary evil to be limited as much as possible? Yeah, I, I, I just I'm thinking out loud about this point because I, I I think that there's often the ideal in people's minds is is energy that's invisible, I mean, the the idea that it you know the production of energy should be completely invisible in the same way it is when we just people think energy comes electricity comes from the plug and with i think in people's minds they're not envisioning when you say oh this they have an image in their mind of what an oil rig looks like or what a coal plant looks like but it's not like when when an environmentalist is arguing against those he then juxtaposes what his solution would actually look like like you know in Canada they'll talk about oh my gosh you can't disturb any of the forest and it's just so much of the country is forest as like what what would you be doing if you were trying to power the whole country with solar and wind i mean you'd be cutting down a lot of trees that's how you would uh be even trying to do it right i mean you know from my perspective i think it's it it is a more a convenient argument than a serious argument when uh when environmentalists complain about the um you know the, the the footprint of the projects, or or the the views of the projects, because all you have to do is look at Anwar, which is an enormous resource sitting under a very small patch of land that no one ever looks at, and they're they are just as opposed to to getting oil from there as they are from anywhere else. Yeah, well, this goes to what what their ultimate moral standard is, because it's 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 always this ideal of non-impact. It's wrong to impact it at all, even if it's not about, we want to make sure there's an, you know, there's this beautiful area that we really enjoy, like, and let's say I don't want, I don't want somebody, well, certainly, let's say in Laguna, where I live, I certainly don't want someone putting a bunch of windmills right in front of it, uh, for no good reason, if it, you know, if it's not necessary. Uh, but, well, anyway, so I've, I've covered that one, uh, uh, a bit. So let, let's go into the reforms. So there's 
Reform 6 is establish five-year leasing plans for federal lands similar to those for current offshore leases and, determine, and determined by the BLM uh, with annual price-dependent output targets. Require that plans demonstrate sufficiency to meet such targets. So what, what do you mean by those targets? Yeah, so, you know, there are two components here. One is that at least we have for offshore federal uh, resources places like the Gulf of Mexico, the federal government is required to publish a five-year plan that says, here's what we're going to lease over the next five years. And that provides some visibility for industry, um, and it gives analysts like myself the chance to look at what they're proposing and compare it to what they've done in the past and see if they actually do what they said they were going to do. And it can be a, a helpful way to provide a little bit of accountability uh, for whether or not the federal government is developing the resources appropriately. Onshore, we have nothing like that. There's no effective transparent mechanism to understand where is there going to be access provided on federal lands and, and does the federal government follow through. So step one is to say, look, we need to have leasing plans for all federal land onshore and offshore. And then step two is to say, let's also make clear what we're trying to achieve. So let's establish how much oil and gas we want to be producing from federal lands and waters. And then let's evaluate the proposed leasing plan against that. Because we have at least a preliminary sense of what we think we can get from those resources. So let's say we agree we want to see an X million barrel per day increase in production. And then let's hold the proposed plans up against that and make sure that you know, those agencies with all their discretion are actually providing access to resources that's going to meet the goals that we want them to meet. Why does it need to be that way? I mean, why can't it just be you're free to drill in these places if you are willing to pay to lease them? Well, I think, you know, the federal government in its management of both lands and waters has... Uh, first of all, an obligation to the people of the country to manage the resources as the people would want. So I suppose you could say it is the view of the people of the country that we just want all development occurring everywhere at once. But I don't think that really reflects uh, necessarily what people want. I think there are some places that uh, are more suitable to development that, um, you know, when you take into account very legitimate environmental risks and concerns make things better or worse. And then there's also the uh, issue of administration. So you need uh, somebody to actually manage that process and manage who's leasing what and who's receiving what permits. And it's not necessarily realistic even if the oil and gas industry wanted to develop everywhere at once, which they probably don't, to expect the government to manage all that development everywhere at once. So the idea of having a plan in place, I think, makes sense. Um, the important thing is that it be a plan that, uh, that achieves the development goals that we have and that provides the transparency for everybody who's involved in the process. Got it. Okay, well, there are, uh, we still have reforms uh, 7 through 11. We're not going to get through uh, all of them, but, of course, we'll link to the report. But I definitely want to discuss Reform 7 because this is – this is something that's very important for people to understand, which is 
eliminate restrictions that prohibit development of ANWR in the Outer Continental Shelf. So for those who don't know, what is the Outer Continental Shelf and, and why is this so important? So the Outer Continental Shelf is just the term for those areas off the coast of the country um, that are still under the control of the United States government. And so the Gulf of Mexico, um, the, the initial stretch of ocean off the coasts of the East Coast, the West Coast, and, and the Northern Coast of Alaska are all part of what's called the Outer Continental Shelf. And those are areas that are estimated to have um, enormous resources. Um, you know, just to kind of give a, a sense of the context, the, the latest estimate for, uh, for the resources in North Dakota is seven to eight billion barrels of recoverable oil. The size of the offshore resource is more like 80 to 90 uh, billion barrels, and of that, only half of it is currently accessible. And so in, through various uh, both rules from agencies and then also congressional moratoria, uh, much of the Outer Continental Shelf has put, been put off limit to development. And then even areas that were slated for development, uh, off the Atlantic coast in particular, uh, were then canceled by the Obama administration. And so there, there are a lot of areas that we think probably have a lot of oil and gas resources, um, but that have not been open even to preliminary exploration, let alone actual uh, drilling and production. So let's say we opened up uh, these areas, the, the onshore and offshore areas that we're talking about here. Uh, obviously, you can't quantify it exactly, but, but what scale of benefit are we talking about? I think you're essentially talking about a replication of the shale boom. So, you know, this is something that will take time to happen. If you, if you started down this path today, uh, both the government and industry would have to prioritize areas to focus on first. You know, oil and gas would start flowing in, in five to ten years in a lot of cases. But what you're ultimately talking about is, let's say, between... 2020 and 2025, seeing a repeat of what we've seen happen between 2010 and 2015. So it's it's three to four million barrels of oil a day. Um, it's a, it's incredible increases in natural gas production as well. It's all of the capital investment and employment that comes along with that. It's the increases to U.S. GDP uh, and its and its reductions in gas prices. Well, oil prices that translate to both gas prices and other lower energy costs. Uh, and if you combine that with some of the policies we were talking about earlier to make sure you can move it around, to make sure you can export it, um, it you know, the benefits should be even larger and should also help to impact the, the global energy market. What do you think are the chances of this? I asked you about the last, uh, you know, about last potential Republican Romney, but uh, in, the, in, in this coming election, how much do Republicans support these kinds of policies and how much do Democrats support these kinds of policies? Well, you, you know, in general, Republicans support them and Democrats don't. Um, I think from the Republican side, this is an issue that is not being talked about as much as it should. Um, I think there's a general perception that you know, the oil boom has already happened, um, that prices are now low, that we're actually seeing layoffs in the industry and a slowing of activity. So why on earth would you kind of make this a plank of your economic platform? And I think that's very misguided. I think um, 
now is exactly the time to be talking about these issues. The argument is every bit as good as it has ever been. And it's actually a lot stronger because we now have the evidence from the shale boom to prove that the things we've been saying about gas prices, about employment, about economic growth are actually true and will happen when we develop the resources. So I would love to see this be something that gets a lot more attention from any candidate who's willing to talk about it, but I suspect um, you know, most likely to come from, from the Republican side. I think on the, on the Democrat side, you have some candidates who are kind of very strongly opposed to these kinds of policies. Um, you know, Martin O'Malley is, is running around talking about 100% renewable energy by 2050. Um, Bernie Sanders, I, I don't know the specifics, but I know that oil and gas production are not on his agenda. Um, and then I think actually what Hillary Clinton has done is a little bit interesting because she just, uh, you know, at the end of July, put out her the beginning of her climate and energy plan. And Plank 1 said, you know, focus on a, a huge increase in renewable energy. But, but further down on the other places she was still planning to talk about, didn't say eliminate other kinds of oil and gas production. It, it said develop it responsibly and leave sensitive areas off limits. And so what she means by that, I think, remains to be seen. Uh, my assumption would be that, that she will take a position very similar to what President Obama did uh, in terms of leaving most of this stuff off limits. Uh, but, but at the moment, she certainly left herself a little bit of wiggle room. And, and the most telling one will probably what she, be what she says about drilling in the Arctic. Um, drilling in the Arctic Ocean has become the new flashpoint for environmentalists. The Obama administration finally signed off on it very recently, um, at least as something that could be started on a, on a very limited basis. And that's something, if it moves forward, has enormous potential, but something that's gotten huge pushback, uh, you know, complete with, with protesters in kayaks trying to, to stop the ships from moving out to sea. Um, and, and I would expect to see that be where a lot of the debate focuses um, in in the coming months and up through the, the election in 2016. I think, you know, the, the important point for pro-production folks to make is, look, there are lots of places we can be drilling for oil and gas. And one of them, for instance, is Anwar. Um, another is off the Atlantic coast. Another is in other parts of the Gulf of Mexico. And so, you know, everyone always talks about kind of an all of the above energy strategy. The environmentalist position is none of the above. Um, and, and that's what's so unreasonable. I think there are plenty of trade-offs and bargains to be struck about what gets developed when, but saying none of the above isn't, isn't really acceptable and, and is just the wrong direction for the country. And so, you know, it would be great actually to see from at least responsible folks in the Democratic Party an acknowledgement that this kind of development is good and that we should choose where to, where to focus first. Yeah, I'm glad that, I'm glad that it's so nihilistic on one side, not because I'm particularly partisan, uh, but because with Hillary, you're talking about the, the percentage things really scare me. Uh, because if you're saying, well, this percentage has to come from quote renewables, but you know, mostly I think in her mind, solar and wind, and it's something like 33. I mean, that is, that is an implicit cap on other forms of energy. I mean, it's saying no matter how good, we get at producing oil and gas, these laggard technologies that 
even rely on gas in particular to exist at all, they need to be 33%. So, I mean, I don't think there's any chance that would actually happen under the administration, but it certainly becomes a justification for every moratorium, every restrictionist to say, look, we've got to get to 33% and we're nowhere uh, near that. So it, I, I like that people are open that they're for none of the above, or at least nothing that works. I mean, the, you know, the, the connection to the renewable target is really interesting because when you hear, oh, we, we want 33% renewables, like you said, it immediately begs the question, well, what are we going to have less of? And, and in theory, you know, I think what, what the environmentalists would say is, well, we want less coal and that, that it doesn't have to be an obstacle to natural gas. But, but in reality, part of the uh, economics of the market is going to dictate that it makes it harder for natural gas as well. And, and that's what brings all of this back to that discussion about exports, because if you had an open export market, then no matter what the, what the government's policy on renewables was, you could still reap a lot of the economic benefits of, of producing and selling the oil and gas. And, and that's why the environmentalists are, uh, are so focused on preventing the exports as well, because it's not, a, not enough to impose the renewables mandate on the country, they also want to make sure that, you know, none of those other resources sneak out and, and get to be used anywhere else either. Right. I mean, the whole keep it in the ground and the, you know, they have the same moral argument that says it's wrong to use it here uh, is used to say that it's it's wrong to use it other places. It's, you know, they think of it like we're pushing heroin domestically and then we're going to be selling it overseas, which is an obscene uh, metaphor. But uh, nevertheless, I, I hope that, uh, and I'll, you know, work on my own end, and I'm sure you will work on yours to, to make sure that some of these ideas get in the election, because I think that it's it's there's just so much potential. But also, I think that if if adopted in the right uh, rhetorical way, it could be a powerful weapon for a candidate to to be able to offer. Hey, I have this inspiring vision of the future. They just pretty much have no. Uh, to everything. It's not that they want these other technologies to have massive innovations that allow them to be competitive. They want to force us to use the worst performing forms of energy and to completely stifle our capacity as Americans to create this. So I think, I think it could be a winning issue uh, in, in every sense of the word. Yeah, I, I see it as a winner also. And, and I think, you know, I just think back to 2012 when on, on the Romney campaign, we were trying so hard to make the case for expanded oil and gas production, and the, the theory was there, but it was it was hard to point to concrete examples of of how impactful it could be because we had a forty year track record of declining in oil and gas production to work against, and and that has just been completely flipped on its head. The evidence that increasing oil and gas production is good is so overwhelming, and the I mean even down to the personal stories of all of the people who now have jobs in this new oil and gas sector uh, that would not have existed without the shale boom. And so I think being able to point to that will make a really big difference in, in, in demonstrating that this is an important part of the country's economic future. Awesome. All right, Arn, where can people find out more about you and read your work? Uh, it is all on the Manhattan Institute's website, manhattan-institute.org. Um, that report is, is right up there. And then, uh, certainly all the other 
uh, stuff I am writing on energy and climate policy. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Oren Cass for being on the show. One takeaway for me is just the urgency among advocates of energy production, of, of human progress, to tell political officials, particularly those running for election, particularly those running for presidential election, to really aggressively push policies that will liberate energy production. And I think it can be a winning issue for the candidates in terms of their own uh, gaining of office. But more importantly, you know, I don't really care about any given candidate gaining office. But more importantly, it just is a much, much better situation uh, for the people of this country, both the producers and the consumers of energy. So um, I actually prepared a document called How Republicans Can Make Energy a Winning Issue in 2016. If you're interested in that document, uh, email us at alex at industrialprogress.net. Email me, I guess, and uh, I can send you a copy of that. And we're going to be coming out with our own energy plan in the next month or two. So one thing to absolutely make sure of is that you are on our list. So right now, go to industrialprogress.com, subscribe on the list, and you'll be kept up to date on everything. Same deal, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Make sure to be on those. Both there's the Alex Epstein account on both of those, and then there is the uh, I Love Fossil Fuel account and the I Love Nuclear account. So check out all of those. As always, any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Uh, I've enjoyed having a power hour every week for the past several weeks. We'll keep it up. Actually, last week we posted two power hours. Hopefully everyone enjoyed that. Uh, always, always enjoy your feedback. Um, but that's it for this week. So until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.